0: This is Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, Episode 27, Part 2.
1: Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours.
0: In the last episode, you met Vancouver Police Officers Len Hoag, David Harrison and Joe Percival. They joined the force in 1956 and quickly started to supplement their salary after hours. First, they started stealing the day's take from Dairy Queens, upgraded to household b escalated to bank robberies, and then in 1965, they pulled off the biggest heist of the century. $1.2 million worth of banknotes that were being shipped back to Ottawa to be destroyed. What these dirty cops didn't know was that each banknote had already been drilled with three holes and the haul was virtually worthless. Just after 6am on Monday, April 19th, and two days after Percival and McDougall's arrest, Hogue was driving on the westbound lane of the Portman Freeway when his Volkswagen jumped a curb, hit the railing on the overpass, and skidded on its side for about 45 meters. Shortly after the accident, another car crashed into the Volkswagen. Burnaby RCMP officer Gary Day was on traffic detail that morning. When he got to the scene of the accident, he found Hoag sitting in the back of a police car with a cut on his forehead. He was sober and noticeably gray. Day was surprised not to see skid marks on the road and he took Hogue to the Royal Columbian Hospital to be checked out. He thought that, under the circumstances, Hogue was acting normally. At 7am that morning, Dr George Bell put six stitches into a cut above Hogue's right eye. He checked Hogue for signs of concussion, headache and vomiting, but found that his blood pressure and pulse were normal. Pupils responded well, and he was alert. Hogue told him that he didn't have a headache, and Bell found him relaxed and calm. Al Kerr of the Northwest Towing Company towed Hoke's car. He called him later and asked what had happened. Hoke told him that he thought he was hit by another car. He asked Hoag what he wanted done with his car, and Hoke told him that he didn't care; he could do what he liked with it. In a statement to police, Hoke said that he was doing seventy miles per hour—that's hundred and twelve kilometers—when he braked. The car went out of control and overturned later that day RCMP constable Gary Day went to Hogue's house to question him about the accident it took a long time for hogue to answer his questions the officer noted that he was very quiet soft-spoken and withdrawn he'd be talking to hogue and all of a sudden hogue would act like he was startled and didn't appear to hear what officer day was talking to him about he would just answer yes 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 to whatever he was asked. Hoag, he said, was very polite during the interview, which lasted about 10 minutes. Day concluded that the car accident was a failed suicide attempt. Hoag was scheduled to work the day of the accident, but he phoned into his boss, Inspector Alfred Oliver, and booked off work. The next afternoon, when Oliver was told Hoag had not shown up for his shift, several attempts were made to phone him. When he couldn't be reached, Oliver and Staff Sergeant Bert Much drove out to the house to check on him. They found that all the curtains had been closed and they could see a single light on in the basement. There was a Vancouver Sun on the doorstep dated Tuesday, April 20th, and there was a black Labrador waiting by the back door. A next door neighbor had tried to feed the dog, but she refused to eat. The officers thought that the Hogues may be away for spring break, and they weren't overly concerned. Hogue, they knew, had booked off sick, and they thought he may be at a doctor's appointment or in hospital. When no one answered the knock on the door, they tried the three doors front, back, and a door to the basement from the carport, but all were locked. And then they left. When Hogue didn't show up for work again the following day, Oliver and Much drove back to his house. He hadn't called in sick and there was no reason why he shouldn't have been at work. The officer said later that he worried that Hoag could be unconscious and his family may have been away. When he and Oliver arrived back at the Hoag house, they found the black lab still sitting at the basement door. Oliver got down on his hands and knees and peered into the ground-level basement window. There was a light on, and he could just make out the body of a young girl lying on the Chesterfield with a bullet hole in her forehead. He phoned the Vancouver Police Department and the Burnaby RCMP. All the doors and windows were locked and there were no signs of forced entry. When RCMP Constable Edward Perry arrived, he kicked in the back door with his foot. If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a Forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at forbiddenvancouver.com. And save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. When police entered the Hoag's house, they found six Easter baskets, one for each child, and a large Easter cake on the kitchen counter. They also found eight bodies scattered all over the three floors of the house. Each one had been shot in the head. Police found three bikes leaning against a wall in the double carport. Inside, They found a bundle of newspapers that Hoag had helped the kids collect for a Boy Scout fundraising drive. They were neatly tied and ready for shipment. Cindy, the Black Lab, and the Hoag's pet hamster were taken to the SPCA in Coquitlam. RCMP Sergeant Edward Kurtz, in charge of the identification section in New Westminster, was called to the house. It must have been really difficult for him. His son, Ken, was best friends with Larry. The Hogue's oldest boy. They were in grade eight at Montgomery Middle School. They attended Boy Scouts together, and as it happened, Ken had been invited for a sleepover that night to try out the Hoag's new pool table. When the 14 year old arrived that morning, Cindy, the Hoag's lab, was scratching at the back door, and no one was answering his loud knocks. Shanda Stemp's mother was a teacher in Coquitlam, and she taught both Larry and Noreen. Shanda was Noreen's best friend and she was also confused. She'd been invited for a sleepover, but when she got there, no one was home, or so she thought. Kurtz found Larry lying face down in an upper bunk bed in his pyjamas, two bullet holes in the back of his head. He removed one bullet from the boy's head and another from the wall. Three-year-old Richard, the youngest child, was found dead in his cot upstairs. At this point it seemed that the other four children were woken by the gunshots and scattered through the house, trying to hide from the killer. Darlene, who would turn five in a few days' time, was found lying in the corner of the basement. Kurtz found the spent bullet in a cupboard against the wall where the kids' toys were kept. The bullet that killed her was lying on the inside of a toy stove. Twelve-year-old Noreen lay dead on the Chesterfield. By the position of her body and the angle at which the bullet had pierced through the plywood and then hit the electrical wiring, Kurtz determined that the bullet had to be fired by a left-handed person. He found eight-year-old Raymond lying face up on the bathroom floor. The bullet had passed through the back of his head first, through the front, and penetrated the rim of the toilet seat, broken a piece out of it, and then ricocheted back. In the next room next to the laundry where Irene had done her ironing, was the body of six-year-old Clifford Hoag. He'd been crouched down and hiding in a closet when he was hunted down and executed. The bullet had passed through the wall of the closet and was found lying on the carpet of the living room floor. Kurtz found that propellant powder residue on the flesh around the bullet wounds indicated that the gun was fired from less than half an inch away. There were six shots still in the gun, meaning that the killer had stopped to reload before continuing to hunt down the children. Altogether, nine shots were fired and nine spent bullets were recovered. One bullet in the head for every member of the house, except for 14-year-old Larry, who had been shot twice. Kurtz also recovered more cartridges in the glove compartment of an abandoned 1965 Medio station wagon that Hoag had rented from Tilden on the afternoon of his car accident. For some reason, the car was found parked at Ray's service station on Como Lake Road five blocks from the Hoag's house. Kurtz found Hoag's fingerprints in a few places in the car. This, of course, is not at all surprising. Hoag had definitely rented the car. Of more interest was that there were no fingerprints found on the actual gun. If Hoag used a gun to kill his family and then himself, how did he fire the gun nine times, reload it once and not leave any fingerprints?
2: Visit evelazarus.com and buy Eve a coffee if you're enjoying Cold Case Canada.
0: The coroner's inquisition was held on April 23, 1965 in New Westminster, but the outcome had been decided days before jurors heard one word of evidence. Headlines immediately after the murders screamed, Policeman massacres wife, six children, eight massacred in robbery sequel, his guilt built up finally exploded. And mass slain suicide shocks mainland area, tot stalked through house. These headlines and stories left no doubt who the police and media thought was responsible for the carnage. Jury members were told not to concern themselves with the circumstances prior to the Hogue's deaths, or in other words, try to forget that Hogue was a dirty cop. The theory splashed on page one of every newspaper was that Hogue, who had started to undress to go to bed around 1:30 a.m., changed his mind, and instead of using his 38 police-issued special, took out the 357 Magnum that he'd supposedly borrowed from the CPR's Don McConnell earlier that day. Now we only have McConnell's word for that, and Don McConnell is not his real name. I used a pseudonym because he was never charged in relation to the robbery. Hogue, according to this theory, shot his 33-year-old sleeping wife in the head. Next, he went to the boy's bedroom where he shot his oldest son, Larry, as he was trying to get out of his top bunk, twice in the head. He found and killed Raymond 8 in the bathroom and hunted down and murdered six-year-old Clifford, who was hiding in a closet. Then, Hogue reloaded and went down into the basement to find and murder his two daughters. Hogue then went back to the master bedroom and shot himself through the left temple. While Hoag and at least one of the children had been shot by someone who was left-handed, no one could remember if Hoag was left or right-handed, and apparently no one thought to call one of the extended family to ask. Inspector Oliver said that he couldn't say what had Hoag used to write with, but he'd seen Hoag shoot a gun at the range the previous September with his left hand. This wasn't conclusive, he added as police officers were trained to fire with both hands. The jury heard from the Hoag's family, Dr Leonard Zimich. He'd last seen Len Hoag a few months earlier when he had made an appointment to discuss some pain he was experiencing from an old ankle injury, as well as a mild headache. The doctor didn't find anything to indicate that he was depressed or unusually stressed. Zimich said as far as he was aware, Len didn't drink. And he was a good father who showed genuine concern for his family's health and welfare. Frederick Sturrock, a pathologist at Royal Columbia Hospital, did the autopsies on the Hoag family. He testified that all the bullet wounds were consistent with having been fired at close range, and there was powder present around the wound on Len Hoag. Toxicology tests came back negative for alcohol and drugs. I was really surprised to find that nowhere in the inquest does it mention if Hoag was tested for gunshot residue. If he didn't have GSR on his hands, he couldn't have fired a weapon. When Don McConnell, and just a reminder that's not his real name, when he testified at the inquest, no one knew why he'd been suspended from his job as a CPR policeman just two days after Percival and McDougall were arrested in Edmonton. The jury didn't hear that McConnell, a former Ocala prison guard, had worked with Joe Percival or that Percival, a former Vancouver Police Department constable, was currently facing a lengthy prison sentence for his part in the CPR robbery. The jury also did not hear that McConnell's duties as a CPR policeman regularly took him to the merchandise depot where the robbery took place or that he would have known about security measures in the movement of money. The coroner and jurors just heard McConnell tell them that he was a friend of Len Hoag's and had loaned him the 357 Magnum that were used to murder the Hoag family. He told the jury that he and Hoag had been friends for about a year and that he had met Hoag at the police station when he was still working for the CPR. McConnell testified that around 6pm on the day of the murders, Hogue had dropped in to see him at his home in Mount Pleasant. Hogue was driving a rental car and told McConnell that he'd smashed up his own. Hoke he says, told him that he wanted to borrow McConnell's gun to try out at the shooting range. Later, they met up at the parking lot of the Biltmore Hotel, and McConnell told the jury that they'd planned to have a beer there but decided against it. McConnell said he knew that it was illegal to loan Hogue his Magnum revolver, he gave it to him anyway, along with 56 rounds of ammunition. As mentioned, McConnell was never charged in connection to the CPR robbery and unbelievably was never looked at as a suspect in the Hogue murders. What the jury did know was that Hogue was a dirty cop who may have been suicidal. On the day before the jury convened, Deputy Police Chief John Fisk told a reporter that Hogue had been under suspicion for the robbery for a long time. The investigation into Hogue's involvement in the robberies got a kick start with the arrest of Joseph Percival in Edmonton. Percival and Hogue they knew were friends. Fisk said that Hogue was the second member of the city jail staff to commit suicide within the last five months. This, of course, all strengthened the murder-suicide conclusion that the cops had already arrived at so quickly. The New Westminster's coroner's jury rejected the suggestion that Hogue and his family could have been killed by an outsider. Hogue had already been tried, found guilty, and convicted by the media. To the surprise of no one, the jury found that Vera Irene Hogue, thirty-three; Larry, fourteen; Noreen, eleven; Raymond, eight; Clifford, seven; Darling, four, and Richard, three, met their death by homicide at the hand of Leonard P. Hogue, and that Hogue met his death by suicide. The reason, or reasons for this act, in our opinion, remain unknown. This is George Garrett, former investigative reporter for CKNW. He covered the Hogue murder-suicide in 1965.
1: The police went to his home. They found Hogue and his entire family had been shot to death. And they put it down to Hogue killing his family and then himself. But there are some in the police community to this day that think that uh, there was another person involved, a gunman, who got away. So it was a, a shocking, shocking story
0: you know what you know when I was looking into that and all the newspaper headlines as soon as that came out immediately said it was Hogue and you know there was never any room for anything else and then the inquest happened and no surprise they had the same findings but as far as I can see there was never any investigation done.
1: Well, some things were missing, too. I think you pointed out to me that there was uh, certain evidence, for instance, no indication of whether they examined Hoag's gun hand to see yeah, if there were no, powder
0: burns. No gunshot residue. Rather, or if yeah. they did do that, it never came out in the inquest, mm-hmm. and the question was never asked, mm-hmm. which I find astounding.
1: It's been written off as a multiple murder-suicide, and there it stands. Although there are still policemen who think that one of the perpetrators in the armed robbery of the Holy Money case was involved in killing the Hogue family.
0: Is that what you think?
1: Yes, my suspicion, yes. Mm.
0: Paul Ballard is now retired from the Vancouver Police Department, but he has a personal connection to the case and his own view of what happened that night
2: seven years old, that was probably the big traumatic moment of, uh, of my life, I guess, at that time. I still remember my mom talking to the Sun reporter at the front door who basically knocked on the door and said, so, do you know what happened down the street? And, and we didn't really know. And then uh, he said, well, you know, there was a, a murder there. And did you know the people? And well, that's what my mom said. Oh, my God, that's Clifford. See, so, yeah, I went to kindergarten and grade one with him. And I mean, he had been at my birthday party the January of that
0: year. What's your sense of it? Do you think Hoag killed his kids and then killed himself?
2: There's just no way that, that he loved his you know, his family and everything else. And from the guys that knew Hoag, I mean, he was a putz. He didn't have it to kill his family. We were shocked because when the murder happened, it had only been within a week before that, talking to him in their, on their front yard. Clifford and Clifford's dog coming up to our house. That dog went with the kids everywhere. Mr. Hogue always talked to the dog, you know, like it was a smart dog. I remember that. They still can't definitively say, or I don't think they can, that it was Hogue that killed his family. Everybody said Harrison was just pure evil. It gave everybody the creeps. But weird, as a policeman, so it had to have been somewhere between 82 and 84, my partner and I went to a landlord-tenant dispute on 12th between Quebec and Maine there on the north side. And Harrison was the frickin' uh, manager there. And it was actually, you know, the, the tenants who had called about him bullying them and everything else like that. And it didn't really dawn on me right away, but my partner, this guy I worked with, was like a, an encyclopedia on everything. He immediately knew who he was. And he was trying to bump chest with my partner, George. Harrison was a huge guy. He was in jail. Of course, they put him in general population. He basically fought himself the respect in there. You know, they would normally kill the cop. He was a very
0: nasty guy. I have some great news for Vancouver listeners. Those of you who live in the Lower Mainland and love jewellery and design will be excited to know that Erin Haken has opened a studio in Vancouver. Erin brings her degree in art history and studies in jewellery making, together with her love of antique styling, to create really unique handcrafted pieces. Go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com and receive 15% off your order when you use the code COLDCASE. After the Hogue's estate was probated, police discovered accounts in 10 different banks, but the total was less than $500. The Hoag's entire estate was worth 52000 and most of that was in life insurance policies. Irene's estate, including her half-share of real estate, a small bank balance and insurance, came to just over $15,000. The funeral for the Hoag family was held on the Saturday after the inquest, and the Coquitlam Chapel was jammed with nearly 200 people. Relatives and eight plainclothes police, including Chief Ralph Booth and Deputy Chief John fisk were seated in the front two rows. After the service, the coffins were lined up at the graveside, There were two grey coffins that held Len and Irene Hoag and six little white ones for the children, draped with heart-shaped wreaths of pink daisies for the girls and blue for the boys. There were a few police officers who knew Hoag and many strangers who picked at the flowers, searched them for messages and shifted ribbons on the heart-shaped wreaths of the dead children so that they could read their names. The legendary Simmer Holt, reporting for the Vancouver Sun, asked a woman who was taking pictures of the coffins from various angles if she knew the family. The woman told Holt she didn't know them at all. Afterwards, Holt went back to the East Vancouver house of Irene's parents, Belle and George Howes. Irene's mother told Holt that as far as they were concerned, Len was a great guy, a loving husband and father, and they were upset by the things that were being said about him. She showed Holt the family album which held dozens of pictures of the Hoag's boating, camping and with Len surrounded by his children. Belle Howe said the last time she saw the Hoag family was a previous Saturday night. Irene was busy making a huge Easter bunny cake. Another disturbing consequence of the sensational media coverage was that the Hoag's Coquitlam house became a tourist attraction. The Vancouver Sun published a photo of sightseers on a Sunday drive to their house. Neighbours of the Hogues became so fed up with the thousands of sightseers driving up and down their cul-de-sac that they put up a a three-by-one-and-a-half-metre sign that read Welcome ghouls, happy Sunday outing. One neighbour told a reporter that she'd counted 250 cars in a two-hour period going down their street. Sightseers were stopping neighbourhood kids, many of them friends of the Hogue kids, to ask them which was the house of the murders. Many had brought their own children with them. Simmerholt worked the police beat for the Vancouver Sun and knew all the officers involved. She covered the funerals for the newspaper and followed the case quite closely, even visiting the Hoag's graves several times over the years. In 2012, she told me that she didn't believe that Hoag had committed the murders, that nobody really followed up on that case, it was just left hanging. A spokesperson for the city prosecutor's office told a reporter at the time of the murders that even if Hoag was implicated in the robbery and convicted, he would likely only have had to serve five years. Even then, he would have likely been out in three. Even if he thought his wife would be implicated, her parents and siblings lived in Vancouver and would have looked after the kids. Why murder them? Several retired police officers that I talked to are equally sure that Len Hoag was guilty. Colin Gray also believes Hoag murdered his family and then killed himself. Colin went to Parkland Elementary School with Raymond, the Hoag's eight-year-old boy, and third-oldest of the six kids. Colin found out that his friend had been killed the next day at school.
3: The next day, we were told in school by the principal over the loudspeaker that they were all dead. Oh, my God. I know, and that the father was actually responsible. It was that the father had killed the family. Imagine it happening today. And there would be, you know, a fleet of people descending on the neighborhood, making sure everybody's
0: okay. Well, I just can't, like, this just blows me away that you heard about it over the loud speaker yeah, yeah. and who did it, you know, even before it was proved or anything.
3: They, the principal came on and said that there had been a tragedy and that the Hogue family had all been killed in some sort of violent act and that they suspected the father of doing it. So that I think that was his way of telling us that we didn't need to worry that somebody was out there shooting families, you know. I do remember the adults talking something about how they knew that he had moved there because he thought it was a safe neighborhood for his family. And I think they found the irony of that a little funny.
0: What was the feeling after it happened? Were people scared and did you get locked in your house? No,
3: it was like, wow, it almost like it didn't exist. Like, they, everybody just sort of went on about their business and nobody talked about it. <laughs> it's really kind of weird.
0: Because the murders took place in Coquitlam, the RCMP were in charge of the investigation, which must have been a huge relief for the Vancouver Police Department. Personally, I think the RCMP and the VPD really dropped the ball with this case. It was a huge black eye to the entire police force, and I think they just wanted it to go away. Instead of doing a thorough investigation, they decided to believe that Hoag had murdered his wife and six children and then killed himself, without allowing for the fact that it was much more likely that the CPR policeman had shot the family with his own gun or perhaps Dave Harrison had decided that Hoag and his family were loose ends and decided to get rid of the problem himself.
2: If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com.
0: If you'd like to join in the conversation about this case and others, please join us on my Facebook group page, Cold Case Canada. All the information for these episodes comes from my new book, Cold Case BC, the stories behind the province's most sensational murder and missing persons cases. I'm Eve Lazarus, and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada, and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada And his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934, there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher.